Bible worm, Bible worm, reading the Bible with Bible worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, professor of religious studies at Hendricks College and the founding pastor of Mercy Community Church in Little Rock. And I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish, one Christian. This week, we're reading the story of Easter resurrection as told in John 20, 1-18. We compare Mary's mournful lingering at the tomb to Peter's foot race with the beloved disciple. And we notice how the story unfolds a little more for each of them. Peter sees the clothes, The beloved disciple believes, Mary encounters the risen Lord. And we think however you come to the tomb, it's enough, whether lingering in your grief or racing in your urgency. It takes all of us together to recognize new life taking shape in the midst of death. You can come to the tomb just as you are. Thanks for joining us. Hey Amy, how are you this week? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. It's springtime. It is springtime. We recorded one episode, I can't remember exactly when, back in the fall sometime from your childhood bedroom. You were were in your childhood bedroom and I was in Arkansas. This time I'm in my childhood bedroom and you are in Atlanta. Do you want to give me a tour? Well, I mean, it's not a very exciting, yeah. Basically when I moved out, my parents turned this into a sewing room. And then at some point my mom kind of quit sewing and- now it's just got like a bed in it. I had um, Georgia O'Keeffe posters and a poster of the periodic table. <laughs> but I was, yeah, you did. <laughs> I did not have control over the decor in my bedroom in uh-huh. high school. My parents did. I mean, I didn't really, I didn't protest. Yeah. That was just, that was what was on the walls. You shared a bedroom with but I didn't one or there. more sisters, right? I shared a bedroom with a sister, yes, until I was a senior and she went to college. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Wait, all this time I thought you were the oldest. No, one of my sisters, I have an older sister. Huh. I'm having to reevaluate yep, yep. everything I've ever known about you now. I think I so. I really didn't know that. I think so. Yeah. I think I was, I think in retrospect I was a pretty annoying sister, but I guess <laughs> these you. are, these are the, <laughs> what? <laughs> be annoying about you. I know. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was a delightful well, brother. <laughs> Delight. You were younger. I was a sheer younger, delight. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was younger. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. I know it's interesting watching my four-year-old daughter sort of get used to my eight-month-old son and the mm-hmm. like thinking like, oh, that was what the dynamic was like between me and my sister. I just never experienced it because I was like, because you were in it. Yeah, I was, yeah, and I was teeny, and I didn't think about these things. Yeah. Like it's, yeah. There's a lot of stress involved, and suddenly there's a younger sibling in the house. Well, there's also a lot of stress <sighs> with the crucifixion of your Lord and Savior. <laughs> oh, nice. I don't think you can that use that transition. Can, can you use that transition? That was smooth. So when last we were together, we were reading the Good Friday text in which Jesus was crucified. And when we left, he had just been buried in the tomb by Joseph of Arimathea and our old friend Nicodemus. Yeah. Before we read the text, I just want, I want to ask you an imaginative question that may, that might annoy you. 
But mm, great. <laughs> we have spent a long time, four weeks, sort of making our way up to the crucifixion and burial. And then today we're going to have the Easter resurrection story. The piece mm. that does not get narrated in the biblical text anywhere is what was going on for people between the trial and crucifixion on Friday and the yeah. resurrection on Sunday. So, I mean, the question is sort of like, what do you imagine Saturday was like? I think maybe is the question. Do you have any way for the of, f- for the followers of Jesus? Yeah, for the followers of Jesus. Do you have any way of getting into that mm. imaginative space? That's a really great question. And I'm trying to imagine it, you know, both in terms of it's it's Shabbat and it's yeah. Chag, you know, yeah. it's and it's so funny when I think now of Chag, I think of what we do at Passover, which of course is different than what they would have done at Passover. I would imagine that people were not alone. Like it's a very, very, both holidays are very sort of drawing yeah. together of community. Mm. Yeah. And and they also are days where we try to, you know, elevate our joy, mm-hmm. which I imagine would have felt really surreal and still feels surreal to to people, you know, to mourners today when they when they walk into Shabbat services or when they walk into a holiday. And there are practices now where there's some people when they're in periods of mourning, they they avoid singing or being around singing. And so they only come to part of Shabbat services. But there's also a practice that if you're if you're in the immediate mourning period after a death, you know, called Shiva at seven days long and you really just sort of stay home and people visit the bereaved. Yeah. And then you come to a holiday, you come to a Chag like Passover, it ends. Hmm. Your Shiva ends abruptly and it doesn't start back up again. That's, oh, that's it. That's interesting. You have a shorter you have a shorter period where you're instructed, where you're required, instructed to stay home and really embody the grief of it. So there's really no I mean, I'm, it's it's such a it's a hard imaginative practice because I'm mapping sure. it onto current yeah. Jewish life, and I don't know the extent to which it carried over. But the, yeah, that putting together of grief and the joy of holidays is um, I don't know. It always makes me feel sort of disoriented and out of my body. Yeah, I really love that, Amy, because you know I tend to I think in my own reading practice I sort of forget that. Passover Shabbat piece of it. And I just think like, well, if you had just seen the person you had sort of committed your life to crucified, Mm -hmm. executed by the state, Mm -hmm. and you think that maybe the promises have failed, how, so personally you are distraught at the loss of your friend. Yes. It was a horrible way to die. And so you're traumatized by that. You think that the promises, whatever, whatever you thought he had offered you for the future has now failed. And like, that is deeply traumatic. Adding then to that, the sort of Sabbath, Passover, like we're celebrating right. it's God. It's supposed it's a, to be happy, yeah. but of course you, of course, that is not a match to how you actually yeah. feel. And that's how so many of us, you know, feel. Like once you're past yeah. however young you are, when you start losing people close to you, you know yeah. how it is. Like every holiday is a reminder. It's joyful and also a reminder yes. of the people yes. who aren't there with you. And I imagine that's how a lot of people experience Easter as well. When we're talking about resurrection and new life and people think, you know, here are the people that I lost last year. And yet I'm supposed to be celebrating. That's a really helpful way of sort of framing this text for me. I, I thank you for that. 
Yeah, thank you for the question. That's a great question. Okay, so today's text is the Easter text in John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. And we'll pick up in verse, I'm just going to read the first couple of verses because we have a scene shift quite quickly in this text. I'm reading in the Common English Bible. Early in the morning of the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. She ran to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord from the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. Okay, so I'm just going to stop there, because we, that's sort of the, the first Mary Magdalene part of this text. Yeah. This, John's version of this story is different than some of the synoptics, in that we don't get any other women named as having gone to the tomb. It's just Mary. She's by herself. The text doesn't tell us why she's there. In other texts, mm-hmm. they're anointing him for burial because they didn't get to do it on Friday. Mm-hmm. And so we just don't really know much at all. If, yeah. if you're trying to think about Mary Magdalene and what she's up before dawn, she's going to the tomb. Like, how do you think about what she's up to? Yeah, that up before dawn is such a rich image for me. On the one hand, it just sort of seems like this urgency, you know, that that sh- maybe she's been in this. Wait, is Mary Magdalene Jewish? She is. Do we know? She is Jewish. Yeah. Okay. So she's been in this space of Shabbat and, you know, Pesach, Passover. And I guess what I sort of imagine is she's been going through the motions, but has been urgently mm-hmm. awaiting this time when it would be appropriate to just go back and spend time at the tomb. Yeah. You know, and like I can, I, this you sort of brought this out already in your first question of how long has it been, but the fact that it's not, it hasn't even been morning yet after Shabbat. Like, yes, Shabbat is over, and but it feels like this liminal space mm-hmm. between, you know, Shabbat and the holiday and and what's next. And she's she's right there. Yeah. And this is like the first possible moment when yeah. she could have done, you know, Jesus got whisked away right before sunset on Friday. It's been mm-hmm. a especially holy Sabbath. And now mm-hmm. it's not even quite light yet. So she probably technically shouldn't be up and around, but there's an urgency here or a, she wasn't ready to say goodbye or something. And yeah, now she's got, she's got to get there so she can, I mean, I think when I think about this, it's just like, you know, how you visit the graves of people that you've lost and you just kind of yeah. go and pay your respects. Uh, that's yeah. the way I read her is that she's lost yeah. him. She just wants to go be near his body and be grateful or be sad or, you know, all those emotions that, that you feel. You know, there are a couple of verses later on in this reading that my study Bible, the Jewish Annotated New Testament, draws some parallels to the Song of Songs. Oh, interesting. And. And now as as you talk about the fact that like she probably really shouldn't have been getting up when it was dark and running around the city. Like I don't mm. know what the practices were at that time, but that that's something, you know, in the Song of Songs, the the woman goes out into the darkness looking for her lover and it's dangerous and it's but like she just she won't be stopped. Like she feels that yeah. urgent pull. I love that. Her love is so overwhelming that she, the danger doesn't even really occur to her. I love that, Amy. Mm-hmm. I think the other way one might try to get into that, it's still dark, is, you know, this gospel has played with the images of light and dark quite a lot. 
around understanding mm-hmm. and lack of understanding mm-hmm. who's in the light, who's in the dark. And Nicodemus came to Jesus in the darkness originally. And so I don't know how far we, we ought to read into that, but there's certainly an available symbolism here about yeah. Mary has come. She's drawn in some sort of overpowering love. She doesn't really understand what is happening yet. And then as the, as the day dawns, then she's going to start to understand. Yeah. I love that. I love that. Now, what she sees in this text is just that the stone had been taken away. She doesn't, in other texts, there's an angel there or there's a something there. And we're going to get that a little bit later. But in this initial interaction, it seems as though Mary just comes, sees the stone rolled away, and goes to talk to the disciples. Is that how you read that? Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, you know, I was noticing reading this that they didn't mention the stone being put there in the first place, but maybe that's just a given that you would, you know, cover a tomb with a stone so that, heaven forbid, animals don't, you know, come and mess with the body or whatever. But the the way that the text unfolds, it seems like she sees the stone is gone and then deduces from that that the body must be gone. It doesn't even say yeah. she looked inside. Yeah. That seems really important to me. Do do you go anywhere with that? Okay, I haven't really thought this through, but I think the first place that I would go is, understandably, she's thinking in terms of, like, how the world typically works. Yeah. Like, if if you've gone to the tomb, these are big stones. These are, like, it's not going to blow away by itself. Like, it would have to be really a quite intentional thing to move the stone off the mouth of a tomb. And so if someone has gone through that trouble, you know, your mind fills in the blanks when you don't have the information. And so her mind quickly fills in. Someone did this intentionally. If they did it intentionally, they presumably have moved the body or, you know, messed with the body. And I don't know who it was and I don't know where they took him. And I don't know. know, Her mind is moving fast. Yeah. I think that's exactly right. I, I love that way of saying it. Her mind is moved moved ahead quickly, and it's moved ahead given the way that she thinks the world works. Yes, that's been her experience in yeah. the world. And slowly as this text unfolds, we're going to realize that she has framed what's happened in the wrong framework, but it's a totally yeah. reasonable, maybe the yeah. only reasonable framework, actually, Yeah, given what she knows. Yeah, which is such a... I mean, good, just sort of general corrective, I guess, to us that like, we're always going to fill in the blanks using what has happened to us before. Yeah. You know, and, and this hasn't happened before. That's exactly right. And I think that plays into this idea that it's still dark and the light is just starting to break as well, that they're, you know, mm. we're working out of this sort of not full understanding yet and then yeah. moving towards something else. I love that. All right. So... Picking up then in verse 3, after Mary has made her report. Peter and the other disciple left to go to the tomb. They were running together, but the other disciple ran faster than Peter and was the first to arrive at the tomb. Bending down to take a look, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he didn't go in. Following him, Simon Peter entered the tomb and saw the linen cloths lying there. He also saw the face cloth that had been on Jesus' head. It wasn't with the other clothes, but was folded up in its own place. Then the other disciple, the one who arrived at the tomb first, also went inside. He saw 
and believed. They didn't yet understand the scripture that Jesus must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to the place where they were staying. This is such an intriguing way of telling this discovery of the body. It's sort of, there's a competition here. Who's faster, who's braver, who's whatever. And this sort of like step-by-step process where people get different amounts of insight based on different risks that they take or something. I, it's just such a fascinating approach to telling the story. Yeah. What do you do with the competitive, like the, the running and the, what do you, where do you start thinking about that? I mean, I suppose someone could read it as that, you know, you run faster out of your extreme piety and, you know, whatever, whatever, as like really a a real feather in your cap to run so fast that you're the first one to the tomb. I I personally read it as sort of comical that like, that it matters at this point who gets (laughs) to his tomb first. Isn't there... What's the story? I don't. We didn't read it this year, but I think it is in one of the other gospels about Jesus walking with some of the disciples, and some of them don't they start some kind of foot race? And Jesus like basically rolls his eyes and is like, "Are you people kidding me?" <laughs> yeah. I mean, the text doesn't say that, but that's what I picture. Yeah, they're arguing about who's greatest in the kingdom and and things and all those kinds of things. Uh, Even yeah, while Jesus yeah. is talking about how you've got to take up your cross and follow him, they're like, "I'm yeah, I'm greater yeah, than you." Yeah. yeah Jesus. I like, really rewrote that story yeah. in my head, but it's very entertaining the way I did. <laughs> yeah. it. I, this seem this could well be related to that idea, though. I think. How do you do? You read this as a little bit uh, silly in the way that humans are silly, or do you think there's some real like representation of connection and piety in the the pace at which yeah <laughs> Peter's running? I mean, the other disciple. I read it as comical. Peter. I I go back and forth about whether it intends to be comical or whether it just comes out that way. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. It is especially comical if, as some people do, you read the other disciple whom Jesus loved as being the author of the Gospel of John, in which case... (laughs) I was the winner! (laughs) Yeah. But then to me, the thing that sort of makes it more complicated is, you know, if he had run there and gotten there and gone in and saw the clothes and believed, and then Peter came along like, later, then that reads one kind of a way. But he gets there first, but he won't go in. And then Peter blows by him and goes in, sees, then he goes in and sees more and yeah. believes. And that to me, like that sort of, we've seen several places in the Gospel of John where there's this like progression where things become clearer and clearer. Yeah. And that seems to be at play here too. So at some level, I think it is kind of saying that the beloved disciple is kind of the first one there. The beloved disciple is also the one who didn't abandon Jesus, who was there when, you know, Jesus needed somebody to take care of his mom. Like, it makes the beloved disciple look really good. But you also get the sense that if Peter hadn't been in this story, the beloved disciple would have just gotten there, seen the linen cloth, and stayed on the outside. Yeah. Yeah, and not really understood what was happening. And I I love that because I love the way it unfolds between these three people. Yeah. You know, like Mary, it doesn't report that Mary even looks in the tomb. She just sees the stone moved. And then the first one of the disciples to arrive on the scene sees the linen wrappings lying there, but doesn't go further than yeah. that. And the next one to arrive on the scene, you know, like they, they really do need each other. Yeah. This is one of the things that you you have been very consistent about this. Like, I mean, for 
years now. <laughs> yeah, I have. And I read it of the gospel and I love it's it on so my much. Because I think that's exactly <laughs> right. Yeah, where you know, it takes all of us to put the whole story together and without each other, we wouldn't know. And I, I think that is very much alive. If if Mary had not gone and not reported, no one would have gotten there. If yeah. Peter, if John or the beloved disciple, I guess, had been the only one to go to the tomb, they never would have gotten the next information. Peter is slower, but he's mm-hmm. braver. You know, Peter just kind of does things without really thinking about them, as we've seen. <laughs> and so he bursts yeah. in and sees more. So I think he sort of emboldens the beloved disciple. Mm-hmm. But Peter doesn't seem to quite put it together. It's only right. the beloved disciple who, when he gets in there, now he sees and believes. John gives us a lot of detail about the cloths. So there's cloths that are lying there, and then there's a face cloth that's folded up in a different place than the cloths. Like, it's kind of a weirdly lot of detail about the cloths. It's a lot of detail about the cloths, yes. Do you have any way of starting to make sense of it? I mean, I will tell you in the margin of my Bible, I have a lot of question marks next to this (laughs) (laughs) part. I think... The one thing that seems clear to me in reading it, at least in in my translation, and I think in yours too, is it's it seems intentional. Mm-hmm. Like it says, you know, that the cloths are not all just laying in a heap. Not only are the the cloth that had been on his head separate, but it says they're rolled up in a place by itself. Like you almost picture Jesus standing up and like folding his you yeah. know, T-shirt and putting it over yeah. to the side before, you know, continuing on his way. It's not, I mean, not that the reader would be thinking this at this point, but it's not the kind of haphazard scene you'd expect if an animal had gotten in there or if grave robbers had gotten in there or, yeah. you know, something like that. Like something has happened with some care yeah. in this tomb. But I don't know why specifically the head stuff is separate from the body stuff. Yeah. I love that image of like, for some reason, it's making making me think about, you know, like when you stay in a hotel and there's always this question of like, do you clean up your hotel room before you Mm -hmm. check out so that the cleaning service doesn't have as much work to do? do. Or do you leave it like super crazy because you you can do whatever you want? Yeah. And this to me is like Jesus, like he spent the night in the tomb. <laughs> he got up, he very neatly <laughs> mm-hmm. folded he all of his the things. Bed. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And I like that sort of intentionality about it. And there is a message there, I think, in some way about, you know, Jesus is communicating that he's done this thoughtfully or that he wants, he wants us to understand something that we wouldn't understand otherwise. This text, I think... I was just going to skip back a little bit. It, I mean, you. I think you got to hear the Lazarus story in the back of your head mm. when you're reading this story. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And if you remember in that story, I was just trying to look back in chapter 11. Jesus shouts, Lazarus, come out. And then the text says, the dead man came out, his feet bound and his hands tied and his face mm-hmm. covered with a cloth. Mm-hmm. Jesus said, untie him and let him go. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So you can recognize the similarity. There's the body clothes. There's the face cloth. They're mentioned separately. But Lazarus, Mm -hmm. when he is resurrected, is still shrouded. Mm -hmm. The removal of the clothes without seeing the body means whatever has happened, 
Jesus is unshrouded at this point. That seems yeah. important to me. Yeah. And I mean, I guess we don't know this for sure, but it seems, you know, in the other story, Jesus has to tell other people to unbind yes. him. And here, as far as we know, there was no one else unbinding Jesus. Exactly. So if you were to take that one more step, where would where would you end up? Jesus is more powerful than Lazarus. No. I think um, that's actually I think that's actually part of it. Yeah. Um I mean there is some I mean, I don't know. I get all twisted. This gets twisty for me in terms of like bodily resurrection and Yeah. Jesus's relationship to his body at this point. Yeah. And whether he is inhabiting his body pretty much like a human except that he's been resurrected or whether again he's sort of in this liminal state where it is a bodily resurrection but also he is n- he is not the the physical binding of his body isn't insurmountable in the yeah. way that it might be to a regular old human no i think that that's a this, the nature of jesus's body at this moment in the narrative is a vexed question and we're going to see more about it later in this text and then again next week in the mm-hmm. story of thomas mhm the way that I would tend to frame it, I think the thinking about Jesus's relationship to his body is very helpful. And also, I think that part of what's at stake, at least in my reading, is Jesus's relationship to death. And so to the extent that the burial shrouds represent death itself, mm-hmm. Lazarus, when he is resurrected, is still shrouded in death. Mm-hmm. And Jesus, when he is resurrected, spoiler alert, that's what's happening in this, in this text, even though I haven't read it yet, uh, is no longer shrouded by death. And so his resurrection is a different kind of resurrection than Lazarus's. Lazarus's resurrection is a res- yeah. resurrection back into life as it is lived, from which he is again going to die. Jesus's resurrection is the conquering of death and the unshrouding of his human body from the sh- from literally from the shrouds of death. and. It's so it's just different in even though it seems similar to us on the surface, it is different mm-hmm. in kind. And I think mm-hmm. that that's one thing these shrouds are doing, these claws are doing, is signifying that to us. Mm-hmm. Bobby, I have a question burning a hole in my pocket. <laughs> yeah. What do the what do the disciples think happened? What does it mean when it says this other disciple saw and believed? Yeah. Believed what? Yeah, especially when you read that in light of verse 9, they didn't yet understand the scripture that Jesus must rise from the dead. Yeah. So if he's believed, but he hasn't understood the scripture, then what is he actually believing? Does he, right, he believes Mary that Jesus isn't in the tomb? And if that's the case, isn't it weird that then they go home? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Like, oh, well. Yeah. No, it is a weird, like, you really want there to be more to that sentence. He believe, You want the object, the direct mm-hmm. object of that verb. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I do. That is what I want. Do you have it? Well, no. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> My reading of it is that he believed that Jesus had been resurrected. Okay. Because if he just believed that the body has been taken. The rest of the story doesn't really make any sense. Mm-hmm. Like he's seen Ra- Lazarus resurrected. I was going to, I was just, just what I was thinking. Like he's seen Lazarus resurrected and he saw that it was Jesus who did that. Yeah. 
It's a weird, and I almost feel like you could say that and then say, but they still didn't understand the scripture that he must, you know, whatever. It could maybe not understanding that this is fulfilling anything or or whatever. Or the cosmic significance of it. Yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. Right, right. You know, we have talked along the way about the identity of the beloved disciple. Mm. The most common reading of it is that it is the writer of the Gospel of John. So we would Mm -hmm. say that John, Mm -hmm. which I think is an entirely reasonable reading and, and maybe the best one. But, and, there is another reading of it, which is that the beloved disciple is Lazarus. Because Mm. remember that Mary and Martha say, the one whom you love has died. Then the Mm -hmm. Gospel of John starts referring to the beloved disciple only after the resurrection of Lazarus. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so there is an argument that the beloved disciple is in fact Lazarus. If you read it that way, and I am not necessarily saying that you should read it that way, Mm -hmm. then what we have is somebody who has himself been resurrected from the dead and yet still shrouded in his burial cloths, walking into the tomb, seeing the burial cloths, and he believes. Yes. Now, if you read it that way, it it opens up a whole different world of meaning. Yes. Oh, I really like that. And I I mean, I can't certainly can't make a case about whether that's the best reading or not, but I love, you know, we we spoke earlier about like Mary only has her own experiences in the world to try to fill in the gaps and – and we can say that all the disciples are aware and believe that Lazarus was brought back, brought you know, resurrected from the dead. But it's a different thing. <laughs> if it's you, <laughs> well, no, it's a different thing when it was you. And I could, I could see how that would mean. He understood. He believed that Jesus had been resurrected in his body. But yes, but didn't understand that there's still more to come. Yeah, you know, it, it wasn't just, it wasn't just the same thing happening again. Yeah. I think that there's a version of that that works even if this isn't Lazarus, as long as it's someone who witnessed the resurrection of Lazarus, who sees and believes. And then, and at that point, you would be believing that something like what happened to Lazarus has also happened to Jesus, but you wouldn't see the big significance of it. If it is Lazarus himself, Mm. to me, that personal nature of that just opens up a whole world of one who has been through something is able to recognize it. When it yes. happens again. Right away. They can see it right away. Whereas maybe other people can see it if you, you know, yeah. point it out to them. But I can see why he would see it first. Like he's the first one in this story to believe that. We were talking about this in the Bible Worm Collaborative. And one of the Bible Worm Collaborative members was, was had done some reading on the Beloved Disciple. And James Charlesworth, who taught at Princeton for a long time, I think it was Charlesworth, argues that the beloved disciple could not have been Lazarus. And one of the reasons why is because (laughs) this makes me laugh so much. I haven't checked this reference, by the way. But the the argument is if you had been resurrected from the dead, if you had been dead for four days to the point that you could stink and then were resurrected, you would not have been able to outrun Peter in a foot race. (laughs) That's amazing. (laughs) Yeah. You'd be like, oh, like a zombie guy. Zombie Lazarus can't run fast. I don't know. Zombies go surprisingly fast. Yeah, they're very persistent, too. So I'm not sure how that works. Zombie Lazarus would not have stopped at the edge of the tomb. Yeah, he would have just kept on going. They don't. No. (laughs) Yeah. 
That's Anyhow. right. Zombie Lazarus is not afraid not afraid of what's happening. I think world. once we've gotten to Zombie Lazarus, it might be time to move on to <laughs> something else. Uh, I think there are probably good reasons for making an, a counter argument to the idea that Lazarus is the beloved disciple. That he would have been slow sure. because he was resurrected is probably not the greatest argument one could wield. Hi everyone, it's Bobby here from Bible Worm. We hope you're enjoying the podcast. Amy and I started Bible Worm a couple of years ago because we wanted to create a space where we could talk deeply about the Bible in ways that bring together our academic backgrounds in biblical studies and our deep engagement with communities and people of faith. We decided to make this resource free because we want everyone to have access to sound biblical scholarship that connects biblical faith to everyday life. We hope you're finding the podcast fits that need. That said, while the podcast is free, making it is not. Amy and I and the rest of Team Bibleworm spend a lot of time and energy studying, recording, and editing the podcast to make it freely available to the public. If you enjoy the podcast, and if you find yourself in a position to support our work, we hope that you will consider becoming a Bibleworm supporter for as little as $4 per month. For a bit more, you can also get early access to episodes, weekly liturgies, video Bible studies, join a monthly discussion group, and more. We realize not everyone is in a position to support the podcast. If you appreciate our work and want to support us, we hope you'll check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast for more details. Thanks so much for listening, and now back to this week's podcast. All right, so they go home, which is kind of an interesting, no matter what you believe at this moment, it is an interesting response that you It is home. interesting that they're like, huh. <laughs> okay, then. And they go home. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what you would, I don't know what you would do. I, I, yeah, I don't now, know. Now, Mary does not go home, and so her no. story continues on, starting in verse 11. Mary stood outside near the tomb, crying. As she cried, she bent down to look into the tomb. She saw two angels dressed in white, seated where the body of Jesus had been, one at the head and one at the foot. The angels asked her, Woman, why are you crying? She replied, They have taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've put him. As soon as she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she replied, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Mm. The first thing is simply a imaginative question, which is, do you have thoughts about why Mary stayed behind? And there's a clear, like, there's lots of crying and weeping that's mm -hmm. going on here. Can you get us inside Mary's head a little bit? You know, it's so interesting because until we really walked through that whole conversation just now, I was much more in the mindset of Mary, I guess. And and I wonder... You know, there's there's no real conversation recorded between the disciples and Mary about what they have come to believe yeah. from what they have seen. Yeah. And, you know, like, hey, you know, Lazarus was resurrected. Maybe Jesus was too. Like, I, I don't know if there was any conversation, but Mary seems to st still just be, she is deep in her grief. Yeah. You know, her, her Lord has been killed in a terrible way. And now, you know, to add insult to injury... His body seems to have been disrespected in some manner by being moved from its resting place and possibly harmed in some way. And she's really, 
that is that is just where she is. Like she she's in that sort of, I guess, familiar-ish narrative to her. Like when when this happens to someone who has died, this is what it means. And the best I can do is to grieve mm-hmm. and weep and you know try to try to make sure the body is being appropriately honored yeah which it is not right now i love that amy and you know it's possible to take easter as sort of a y'all need to get over being sad about death like there's one way of reading the resurrection that is that is that like death is meaningless and so just celebrate when somebody dies and the only one in this text that we have any indication that they are deeply grieved is Mary. And she's the one who ends up getting this further revelation. The disciples who didn't Mm -hmm. seem to be particularly upset just went home Mm -hmm. and they missed out on all this other stuff. Mm -hmm. So to me, that's important that this, the real, just being real in grief and respect for her loved one. She wants to make sure he's well-treated. She wants to grieve mm-hmm. his loss. She's just sad. Mm-hmm. That opens up the story for her. That's in right. In ways that are transformative. And, and so, therefore, it might for us as well. I love that. I love that. I love that sort of permission to be where you are. And, you know, there it is, it is appropriate to grieve and and that as exactly as you said i'm just restating what you just said but like the the people who maybe got one step further in their understanding and then just went home mm-hmm. missed out on on what was next and mm-hmm. yeah yep i'm just restating what you said that i think that's really important now the angels who appear in other resurrection stories but they appear sort of immediately mm-hmm. here they don't sh- we're kind of far into this story and other people have been in the tomb. When Mary looks in, she sees angels where the body had been. Mm-hmm. I'm just so curious about what do you, how do you make sense of those angels? Have they, did they show up after the male disciples had left? Were they there and they didn't see them? Like, I don't know. I mean, that might be a speculative, but maybe the more straight ahead question is why introduce angels into this story at this point? I don't know that this quite answers your question, but this image of the two angels, one at the head and the other at the feet, mm. reminds me of the two cherubim, the two angels oh, that are at, on yeah. either side of the ark in the Holy of Holies. And there's this sort of empty space between them. I love that. Where it's, you know, if it were a religion that had some kind of iconography for God, one imagines that that's where the iconography yeah. would be. But because Israelite religion didn't have that, it was just this open space. And, the, you know, the two angels are looking at each other across this open space. And so when it talks about the angels at the head and the feet of where Jesus had been, that's, that's what that image stirs up for me. I love that so much, Amy. I've never thought about it in those terms before, and that's making my head spin in really positive ways. Because, you know, we've talked all this whole spring about Jesus in the Gospel of John is in some way claiming to be the Holy of Holies, right? He's Mm -hmm. sort of said God's presence used to be fully available in the temple, in the Ark of the Covenant, in the Holy of Holies, between the cherubim, and Mm -hmm. now it's available in me, 
whatever you think about that vis-a-vis Judaism, that's been the theology. And that image of the angels as the cherubim is, puts a really fine point on that. And the fact that they're surrounding where the body used to be yeah. is really important because now it's not the body of Jesus that is the Holy of Holies. It is the resurrected Jesus mm-hmm. who's not even quite there anymore. Right. N- not available. So the body doesn't become the new icon. Right. Right. In some ways, it's just like it was in the temple. Like yeah. there is there is just space between them. Exactly. But the fact that this has been moved into the tomb yeah. instead of, you know, this most sacred space where you would really want to keep death. You want to keep dead things out of the tabernacle. Yeah. I will tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> but this, you know, this whole idea of like over, you know, overtaking the power of death. I don't know. That's not a very uh, graceful way of saying that, but overturning Mm -hmm. this intermingling of holiness and death as like not, not two separate worlds that are battling with each other is really beautiful. I love that. Death has been defeated, right? There, There actually wasn't, I mean, there was death, but that death has turned into life. And so there actually hasn't been a desecration. Mm hmm. Like the, the, the very nature of death itself has been transformed. Do you have any idea why she sees angels when the disciples didn't? Hmm. The male disciples, I should say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, this, the little note that I made in, my, in the margin of my Bible harkens back to a story that I think I have told on this podcast before, or Midrash about the the miracle of the burning bush in Exodus mm. is not so much that there was a bush that burned and wasn't consumed. Like, yes, okay, that's a miracle. But that Moses stood and watched it long enough to see that it wasn't consumed. Like, you'd have yeah. to look at a bush on fire for a significant amount of time to say, like, hey, this isn't progressing. Like, this bush should have burned down by now. Yeah, And that's when God speaks. Mm. And so I guess I see it. It doesn't answer the question of why she sees it and the men didn't. Other than that, she stays and yeah. keeps looking. Yeah. That's a good thing she did. I love that reading, Amy. I think we talked about that. I think we that text was actually early, early this season. Mm. I, think, I think we've talked about it a couple of Another different times. Another Hineni text. I think that's exactly right. Yeah. And I had never made that connection before. I really love that idea. So then your reading is open to the possibility that the Peter and the beloved disciple could have also encountered mm-hmm. angels, but they weren't they didn't linger long enough. They didn't look at the bush long enough. They they were just they were ready to go home. They thought they understood. Mm-hmm. And it was mm-hmm. exactly her lingering. For whatever reason, she's lingered. She's she's still curious and wants to know more. She's still curious, right? Right, and it's almost like it is it is good and important that the disciples understood what they understood. Mm-hmm. But once they understood that, they thought they had it. Yeah, and so they moved on. They went on with their day. They went home. Yeah. Wow, that bush is on and, fire. Let's go tell some right, people. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Right. And and Mary doesn't think she has it. Mary may, maybe didn't understand what they understood, but whatever the reason, she's still in this like liminal state yeah. of not understanding. Now, when the angels 
encounter her. She encounters them. They don't give her any kind of commission or any kind of pronouncement mm-hmm. as they do in the other gospels. They just have the question, <laughs> why are you crying? Which is also the question that then Jesus is going to yeah. ask her in, a, in just a minute. Any yeah. thoughts about why that question is the question? It's such an interesting question. Well, first of all, it seems, do you think that she just sees the angels as people? Because she doesn't remark, like, she, she just answers them. <laughs> That's right. It doesn't say she was, like, they don't have to say, don't be afraid or anything like that. Yeah. And I know in the Hebrew Bible, like, you know, angels can look just like people. You don't necessarily yeah. know. So, so, so I don't know. But she, she, or maybe if she not really, well, it says she saw them. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what she thinks is happening here. It's hard for me. Okay, so I guess I read their question in two different possible ways. One is almost like a like a test, like what do you understand to have happened here? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and the other one is a little bit more of a I don't want to say pointed because I don't think that there's any like mockery or anything like that of her, but it's sort of like a what's your problem? Like mm-hmm. nothing bad is happening here. Why would you be mm-hmm. crying? But she answers them very, even if they mean the latter, she answers them mer- very matter-of-factly. She like, does. This is just a straightforward question from people who maybe don't know what has just happened here. How do you read that question? How do you understand what's happening? I think I tend to read it in the way that you're suggesting that the there's nothing to be crying about here. Nothing bad is happening. But yeah. I... But even as I say that, I don't love that reading because something bad has happened here. And, you know, the when you think about situations of grief, like saying to someone like, this isn't really that big a deal mm-hmm. is not at all helpful. And so I want to both hold on to that. On the one hand, it is exactly her weeping that has kept her around mm-hmm. in order to have this further mm-hmm. conversation experience, insight, and also this idea that the weeping is not necessary. Mm -hmm. If you hold those two together, I think you end up in some place like there is value to the grief that experiences what, what experiences the terrible things of the world and, and legitimately mourns them. Mm -hmm. And also is able to recognize that in the end, the weeping is not the fundamental thing. Like it, it's not the end of this story. It's what, yeah, but yeah, it is yeah. what opens up this story. Yeah. It's reminding me almost of the way we've talked some about healing in this gospel that like Jesus does do healings and sort of recognizes that it's an important way to communicate to the people around him. Thing, things are changing. The things you thought were absolutes are not absolutes. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. But it wasn't. It's. It's like a means to an end, mm-hmm. sort of. And the weeping here has been. You're exactly right. Like the means that opens up everything. But it. But it's like move. It's. It has movement to it. It's not yeah. like you land in grief and then sit in the grief. It's yeah. a. It's a vehicle. Yeah. But if you didn't sit in the grief for at least a little bit, the movement mm-hmm. would have. You would have missed the movement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You would have just gone home. Right. Right, exactly. You would have gone home. Now, Jesus then shows up, and she does not recognize him. 
Mm-hmm. He asks her the same question, woman, why are you crying? And then he adds, who are you looking for? And she thinks he's the gardener and says, tell me what you did with the body, if you did something. What are your thoughts about, I mean, that's a strange little, like she is talking to the risen Jesus. Yes. And it is a very, I don't know, it's just a, it's a curious conversation for the two of them to be having. I mean, is she so out of sorts that she doesn't recognize him? Or does he look, he doesn't look different at this point, does he? I mean, I think that we had talked a little bit earlier about the state of Jesus's body at this moment. Yeah. And, you know, we read last year in Luke's gospel, the story of the walk to Emmaus that took place the, on, on Easter and the disciples walk and talk with Jesus for a long time and don't realize who he is until he breaks bread with them. Mm-hmm. We had mm-hmm. sort of a similar mm-hmm. conversation mm-hmm. then. Like, is Jesus's body different somehow? Mm-hmm. But I prefer to read it the way that you suggested the first suggestion, which is, he just looks like Jesus, but she is not able to grasp the possibility that she's talking to Jesus because her yeah. Yeah. understanding of the world doesn't allow for it. And so she, there's just like this barrier mm-hmm. to sight, which is not anything about what his body looks like, but about what she is able to see and unable to see. That really fits with sort of where we started in some ways with she everyone's mind fills in the blank. Like that's how human minds work. And, and it's a really powerful, it is powerful the way that her minds fill in the blanks here. Even when she has, she does have information. She has a visual, but her mind is like overriding it with what she believes is possible in the world. So even when you're standing here talking to the risen Jesus, yeah, Mm -hmm. you're what you think, think is possible still affects what you can see. And we've been talking all the way through, and we'll, we'll actually talk about it again next week, about this tension between seeing and believing. Yeah. And if, you have, if you rely on what you see in order to believe, then it's not mm-hmm. going to work. And here's another instance of that. Yeah. The other yeah. thing that I find interesting when Jesus says, the extra question he asks, who are you looking for? That's the same question. You remember way, way, way back in John chapter one, when John the Baptist was like, hey, there's the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And the disciples like go following after him. And he turns around and says, what are you doing? Who are you, who are you looking for? Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. that's the same question that he asked his very first disciples at the beginning of this gospel. He's now asking this disciple. I don't know quite what you do with that, but I think that that connection is bridging yeah. the whole gospel together yeah, for some reason. From the, the very, very beginning mm-hmm. to this point. I just, I feel like, now I feel like I could just sit with that question myself for for a really long time. Like, who are you looking for? Mm-hmm. Who are you? Ex- who are you? And who are you expecting? Yeah. And how do your expectations change what you can see and who actually comes? But like, yeah, there's a there's a lot in that question. Mm-hmm. I mean, she answers it literally, which yeah. makes sense in <laughs> yeah. that moment. But if we take it out of the yeah. out of the literal and really ask ourselves, who are we looking for? Yeah. I think you might press Mary even on that question too about there is a there is a very direct literal immediate answer but that doesn't really explain why you're here exactly like you're looking for something deeper than right. than you think even you're looking for That's right. That's right. Okay, so let's read the end of the story then in beginning in verse 16. Jesus said to her, "Mary." She turned and said to him in Aramaic, 
Rabuni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Don't hold on to me, for I haven't yet gone up to my father. Go to my brothers and sisters and tell them, I'm going up to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene left and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord. Then she told them what he said to her. So here in the text, it's the speaking of Mary's name. When Jesus says her name, that shifts everything. Yeah. What do you do with that, the, the name as being the turning point? Okay, you may have to spot me on some of my recollection of these other texts that we've read here. But, but wasn't there, I think it was in the, the text about like, the the shepherd and yeah. there's like people in that you know we had this whole image of sort of people in the in the pen and who's safe and who's that like wicked dangerous person who's yeah what? back from John chapter ten mm-hmm. John yeah mm-hmm. that was our Ash Wednesday special episode that was the Ash Wednesday which yes, turned yes, out to yes, be yes. the key to the whole <laughs> Gospel of John I think who do yeah. wasn't there something specifically there about the ones that that Jesus calls that text in john 10 has several references to this idea but to me that what stands out is in chapter 10 verse 3 and 4 the guard at the gate opens the gate for the shepherd and the sheep listen to his voice he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out whenever he has gathered all of his sheep he goes before them and they follow him because they know his voice so in that couple of verses you get the idea that jesus knows every one of his followers by name and also that they recognize his voice And so Mm -hmm. here you get the kind of embodiment of that when he speaks her name, which he knows, she recognizes his voice. Yes. It's interesting that she didn't recognize his voice previously, but she recognizes his voice specifically in the speaking of her name. When he calls. Yeah. Yeah. It's like she needs sort of the, either there's, she needs either sort of like the double, like she really, she's pretty deep in, Mm -hmm. (laughs) in her own world in some ways at this point. But yeah, that combination of the voice and. And her name pulls her out of it. And to me, there's something in there. If you read those two texts together, this text and John 10, you know, the claim together is that Jesus knows the names of all the sheep. And so it's not, this is not a unique experience for Mary. This is an experience Mm -hmm. that is available to any of the people who belong to the flock of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And there's something deeply, deeply personal about what's happening I often will talk about Christian faith in these sort of broad, systemic, you know, the world is transformed terms. And it is that. And also, there is this sense that in this gospel, anyway, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are known for yourself on a Mm -hmm. deeply personal level. And those two, the kind of personal and the cosmic, they're not different. They're part of the same whole, which is pretty, pretty profound claim. I keep thinking, I'm certain this was not in the mind of our author, but I keep thinking back to this um, thing we've mentioned a couple times is how, or maybe I've mentioned a couple times, about how our mind fills in details yeah. in situations. Sometimes where there are gaps, sometimes where there are not gaps, we're just overwriting things with what we think. And the ways in which at least my rudimentary understanding of how the brain works is that it happens most most easily maybe with vision. Like we... We fill in visual scenes really quickly. We can mm. move fast when we're just using vision because we can mm-hmm. assume we know what it's going to be. So I find it really sort of true to life that it takes 
a different sense, a different sense, you know, like the vision's not going to do it. It's, Mm -hmm. it takes, it takes sound to snap her out of where she is. Mm -hmm. I love that. And I think that's been consistent in this gospel as well. Mm -hmm. I think so. What you see is not sufficient. What you hear, the testimony you believe. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now Jesus says a curious thing here. He says a couple of curious things, but the first one is don't hold on to me for I have, uh, for I haven't yet gone up to my father in verse 17. You have thoughts about like, don't hold on to me. I mean, I think that what strikes me most here, there may be two things. One is. Yeah. yeah okay. So, so on the one hand, it's this sort of the story's not done. I still have something else I have to do. Yeah. And so don't, don't hold me in this place in the story. It's reminding me of a conversation we had in a different year of the narrative lectionary where Jesus has gone up the mountain with some disciples and he has this vision of Elijah oh, and the Moses, the transfiguration. Yeah. And the disciples are like, we should stay. It's, it's good up here. Let's build a little hut. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but there's this idea that we can't, we can't stay we can't stay here. Like, even though there's this moment of relief and maybe a sense of stability, because now you you have seen your teacher again, you know that everything's o- not only okay, but like really, really very much more than okay. Your teacher has been resurrected in his body. You don't, you can't stay. We can't stay yeah. in this moment. I, I really love that second. I, I love both of those readings. That second one to me is really, has a lot to it. Because there's one reading of this, you know, Mary has been through a lot, right? She's seen her Mm -hmm. beloved Jesus killed and now he's resurrected. So she's lost him once and she's just got him back. And so there is a way of processing what has happened, which is, oh, good, things are back the way they used to be. Like we can sort of get back to normal. And so Jesus in actually this captures both of what senses of what you were saying is it's not like it used to be. It is. It is the beginning of something new. Yeah. And so you can't cling to me. Like you're actually going to lose me again. Like I'm going away, but I'm not going away in death. I'm going away by ascension, but it's going to be another loss. And so you would tend to want to hold on. And also this idea of this is not just going back to the way we were, that the world is different now and yeah. we have to move into the next thing and not cling to the, to the past thing. In some ways, that's a really beautiful message. And in some ways, that's a really, really difficult message. Yeah. It's really, you know, I mentioned earlier um, in our conversation some possible connections to the the book Song of Songs. Yeah. And which, you know, narrates this, this really like passionate, fiery connection between two humans, between yeah. a young man and a young woman. And and there are there are these scenes throughout it of of one really like going out and searching for the other one and there's in in chapter 3 verse 4 of song of songs there's this moment where it says you know scarcely had i passed these watchmen in the night when i found the one i love mm. i held him fast and i would not let him go mm. like that is the human thing to do yes. when you find your beloved one that you have been searching for is to hold fast and not let them go. And Jesus knows that. Yes. But says that we that's not what we're doing. This is not that. <laughs> this is yeah. not this is not that. This is not that. Yeah. 
Now, what he, the instruction that he gives her is, go and tell the others, I'm going to my father and your father, to my God and your God. And then that's what she goes and tells them. Mm-hmm. So this is kind of the, whatever the commission is on this version of the Easter story. That's what's important to, to spread. I'm going to my father and your father, my God and your God. Any thoughts about that instruction? I love the way you just put that. Like, this is the commission. Mm-hmm. You know, this is what you need to go and tell people. I just really have this sort of image in my head of, of, of Jesus as in, in, in this articulation as a sort of like point of connection. Like yeah. I'm, I'm here on earth with you and this miraculous thing has just happened, but here I'm back in my body, but I'm going to ascend to God now. Like, uh, I'm afraid I'm going to, I feel like my, I'm going to use terrible words for Christian theology because I don't know what the right answers to this are, but have this image of like an intermediary or a messenger yeah. or a point of connection or, you know, the the ladder between heaven and earth or yeah, all all those things somehow rolled up. How do you how do you understand that? That's the commission, Bobby. Yeah. How do you? Why is that the commission? What you were just saying about Jesus here and there, like as the latter, reminds me of two texts we've read this year. The, the first one was actually in John's gospel in John 151, where Jesus says, I assure you, you will see heaven open and God's angels going up to heaven and down to earth on the human one, which is in turn a reference back to Genesis 28, which we talked about way, way, way back in the fall, the story of Jacob's ladder. And Mm. that idea, I think, is exactly right, that what Jesus is saying is there is now a connection point between heaven and earth, Mm -hmm. which has always Mm -hmm. been there. In Mm -hmm. in Jacob's dream, it's the angels going up and down the ladder. Like God has always been connected to human beings, but now Jesus is becoming that connection. So it's a person that is the connection. And one of the things I love in what Jesus says here is it's my father, your father, my God, your God. So Jesus is identifying more with the human side than with the divine side in in this particular Mm -hmm. statement. So it's, I'm going back up. I'm going to be directly connected. In Christian theology, I'm going to return to the Godhead and like, actually, Mm -hmm. this is all going to get absorbed into God, which is, I think, a little bit step beyond John himself probably. But I know, like, I'm on your team, right? It's my God, my Father is the same as your God, your Father. And that's a really profound idea that like the, ex- the very experience of being human that Jesus has had is now entering into God so that you were talking once a couple of weeks ago about it. it's not, doesn't seem like God loved the world as an object anymore, but Jesus loves mm-hmm. as his own. Like I know what it's like to be you. I think that was mm-hmm. in John 13. Mm-hmm. I think that this is a statement of that. And it's really, really beautiful that. Now we're still connected. I'm still one of you, but now you have a direct conduit into yeah. heaven. I think that's a really beautiful and profound. Like, and if that's going to be the commission, like, heck yeah, like <laughs> let's let that be the commission. What a, what a beautiful yeah. idea. Yeah. Yeah. This bit of like human, this bit of like humanity and humor, human experience entering the Godhead and, and also this bit of God having walked. Yeah. On earth. Yeah. God knows now Mm -hmm. what it's like to be human, and humans know now 
in at least in a little bit of a different way, what God is like because of the incarnation. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. All right, Amy, it seems like a sort of a strange question to ask you to wax on the, <laughs> the meaning of Easter for contemporary life. Um, but that's exactly what I'm going to do, <laughs> but I'm going <laughs> to, but I'm going to frame it through obviously this text. Like what, when you read this text and you think about where it connects to our time and our world, where does your head go? Hmm. I feel like I had something to say until you were like, on the meaning of Easter for the contemporary time. That, <laughs> Sorry. That's, no, 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 no. That's, it's, I mean, it's a good question. It's um, maybe a bigger question than, than I feel like I can answer. But yeah. I'll tell you where my, where my head is after reading this text. And I, I don't think this will surprise you at all because it's often the kind of thing that my head likes to sit with. Yeah. I... I'm just so aware that throughout my reading on my own and our reading, and whenever I read these texts, I always want to say, like, why is that person doing that? Mm-hmm. Like, what they're doing doesn't, you know, I try to get into their head, but, like, it doesn't quite make sense, or I see some flaws in them, or, you know, they should have done this other thing, or whatever. And yet, as we notice today, if Mary had maybe understood this reference to Lazarus, maybe, I mean, maybe she did, maybe she didn't, who knows, but if... She was not comforted when the disciples were comforted, and so she didn't go home. Yeah. I have this this phrase that, this question that I ask myself sometimes when I need a little chutzpah, a little courage, <laughs> and it is, what if you are exactly what's needed? Yeah. Like, what would it look like if you stop second-guessing mm. Should I be grieving? Should I be going home? Should I be racing to the tomb? Should I go inside first? Should I whatever? Like, it can really, um, you know, you were saying that knowing too much theological terminology can sort of blunt things in a way. Mm -hmm. It smooths them, but can also blunt them. I feel like those kinds of questions can do the same thing. It sort of blunts all of our weird edges. And I think our weird edges are actually really needed. And so yeah. at the end of this story, even though we can wonder why did why did Mary Magdalene do this and why did the beloved disciple do that and why did Peter do this other thing? It's a good thing they did. Yeah. Do it all in the way that they did. And so I don't know. I just feel a lot of permission in this text to try to quiet some of those voices of what what should you be doing and what should piety look like and trust that what is unfolding for you is the right thing and that the world needs that thing. Mm-hmm. I love that. I don't think that really touches on the meaning of Easter though, Bobby. I'm going to, I'm going to leave that <laughs> reflection for you. What are, what are you thinking about this text for today's world? Yeah. I mean, I, I love where you went with that for sure. And I do think it connects to Easter, if if not directly. I think it has lots of lots of implications. For me, after talking with you, I, I'm really struck with this idea. Like Easter in the Christian understanding is this world-changing moment. And it's big, 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 most churches. Like there's a, mm-hmm. you know, brass chorale and there's the Alleluia Chorus. And, you know, it's so triumphal, mm-hmm. which I love. But this text is not that. This text is small and kind of dark and quiet Mm -hmm. and personal. And there's lots of crying. Mm -hmm. 
And I worry sometimes that that part of Easter gets lost, at least in the in my practice. There's a message here that's not unrelated to what you are saying that you know Mary came to the tomb not really knowing why she came because she was sad she came in her grief she came not expecting new life and but she came and she lingered and she sat she stayed in her grief and that's what opened up the story for her yeah and to me that there's something just so beautiful about that which is you know, the point of the message of the a point of the story anyway is death is not the end of the story. Mm-hmm. But death is very much the beginning of this story, and mourning yeah. and sadness are very much the beginning of this story. And if she did not allow herself to authentically experience that, she would never have experienced the 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 resurrection glory. And that that comes directly from Jesus in the speaking of her name. In this very mm-hmm. tender, why are you why are you weeping? Which I read, especially in the mouth of Jesus, not as judgy, but as a an invitation. Like, what is it that you are so sad about? Mm-hmm. To me, that cosmicness of Easter also has this intensely personal aspect to it, which is available to every single one of Jesus's followers, who we are all known by by name. We mm-hmm. all recognize. Jesus's voice, or at least have that available to us. So we can also also have that experience of Jesus speaking to us in our grief or in whatever emotion we bring. Whatever state, yeah. I think I said this at the beginning, but I do worry about Easter and the triumphalness of Easter as, you know, death has lost its sting. But for plenty, plenty, plenty of us, death is very much has a sting that we feel some, some immediately and some from long ago. And this text says that's that's okay. Be here mm-hmm. in your quietness mm-hmm. and in your grieving mm-hmm. and in your uncertainty and see if Jesus will, will meet us here in quiet and unexpected ways. Mm. I resonate with that vision of Easter more than the than the triumphal. Although I believe in the I believe the triumphal nature of Easter as well. Yeah. But it's so distant yeah. and tangible to think like death has lost its sting when death is kind of all around. So I like, I appreciate that invitation that it's, it's the grieving and sadness and uncertainty that opens up the possibility of this story. Oh, I love that. And I love, you know, death is not the end of the story in this, you know, in, in the Christian story, but death is in the story. Oh yeah. Very <laughs> you much know, so. like there, there's, there's plenty of death in the story. And I think it's so tempting with, with all kinds of really difficult, hard, sad things to want to skip to the end. Um, and a part of what John has really made us do this year is is sit in this part of the story for yeah. a while. Yeah. I feel that this Easter more than other Easter's, I think largely in, in, due to that emphasis of the narrative lectionary in this cycle on slow, mm-hmm. slowly moving us through the trial and crucifixion. All right, Amy. Well, I have so appreciated talking with you today about this Easter text. Me too. Our next text, which is our last text from the Gospel of John, is one of the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus, first to the disciples and then to Thomas in John 20, 19 to 31. All righty. I'll be here. All right. I'll see you then. Hey, happy Easter.
Thanks. Happy Passover to you and yours. Thanks. Thanks. I'll see you next time. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bible Worm is produced by Bobby Williamson and edited by Joel and Laura Becker. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby. We are grateful to our many supporters for helping us keep the podcast going. A special thank you to our executive producer, Fox Valley Presbyterian Church in Geneva, Illinois. Join us next time when we'll be discussing Jesus' post-resurrection appearances to the disciples and to Thomas in John 20, 19-31. Until then, keep on digging.